Hi and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 90. I feel I should have some sort of uh, musical applause system here. I, um, I don't even have a deck to press a button with, but um, bear with me folks. I'm in a weird sense of humour today, which is perfect because um, our guest today is Dr. Brad Dieter um, from the United States. Hi Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Like I said, I, I sort of woke up today with a weird sense of humour. So we're, <laughs> we're going to see where uh, where today goes. Now, um, as I was explaining offline with you, um, my sort of interests currently are very much about um, the use of knowledge in, in our field. And by our field, I mean sports science, sport and exercise science, exercise science, that sort of sort of area. Um, and I'm fascinated by the concept of science um, to practice, which is what my own doctoral research has, has been in. And I've been sort of engaged in that for four years now, when that's a lot of what this podcast has been about as a research tool for me and to share all this stuff with guys like you um, um, to share knowledge and thought. So um, today, as I said offline, will be a bit more f- sort of freestyle um, than the way I normally do these, which is usually we'll, we'll discuss research, um, go for a few papers and really sort of unwrap the evidence into an applied context. Um, so today, on this theme of sort of science to practice or understanding um, data um, and where it comes from and how we should um, learn to respect um, data and what it means and what it doesn't mean and so on. I thought that um, you would be a great guest to talk to and, and um, I think it will become apparent to the listeners as to why um, when you just give us a little little bit of um, background about who you are, Brad, and, and uh, what you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. I'll uh, try to do the, the soundbite version. So, you know, my background and my training um, is essentially in exercise physiology um, and molecular biology, kind of merging those two fields. And over the course of uh, my career, both in my academic training and my lab work, uh, I've worked with a wide range of of models, right? I've worked from cells to um, rats to mice to grizzly bears to humans. Um, I also have some advanced training in um, statistics and methodology. And so I think my perspective is unique in that it really spans the full translational spectrum, and I've gotten a wide, a wide view um, and also a deep view on a lot of the tools that we use, um, and also how to actually really, really examine data and understand what it means in the context of each application, and also that, you know, there is value in each piece of information that you learn, um, regardless of whether it's from humans or mice or cells, and. You know, how do you use each of those pieces of information you learn and add that to your contributing, growing knowledge of a specific area or problem? Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you, you, you mentioned there grizzly bears. Um, I, I would suggest that that's a, um, a slightly dangerous subject to work with. <laughs> Uh, although we've yeah. all met some grizzly humans, I've definitely. In fact, I was a grizzly human uh, yesterday when I woke up. Um, <laughs> appreciate, appreciate grizzly human. Yeah, especially when you're uh, sticking needles into people's legs. I think um, you, yep. you you do want to identify the grizzly humans. Um, <laughs> so, Brad, um, as I sort of opened up with, I, I'm keen to get into this idea of of science and doing science. Um, it's really popular to use that word evidence-based 
Um, and I've, I've discussed this concept a number of times with various guests, and I've explained why um, I prefer the term evidence-informed, um, and, and listeners can, can look up those podcasts and get into that stuff later. But, but evidence, um, perhaps you could help us understand when scientists um, um, or academics are referring to evidence. What, I mean, what actually... You know, by, to define this this thing, because we're going to get into this a lot and use these words a lot. Well, what do we even mean by evidence? You know, that's uh, that's probably the Nobel Prize worthy question, right? If anybody can <laughs> can really wrap that up with. I'm a waiting nice for nominations, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I really think there's a lot of different ways uh, to look at what evidence is, but when we talk about it more strictly from a, a scientific perspective, is it is. A, an observation or a piece of data um, that's reliable under some controlled circumstance and that you can get the same result essentially from repeating the same, you know, we can call it an experiment or test or whatever. So it's basically a reliable answer to a question that you ask um, that you know is going to happen repeatedly. Um, and I think that's probably one of the most pragmatic ways to define evidence as we talk about it in kind of the scientific perspective, right? It's, you know, really what science is about in a large part is, you know, making predictions um, and developing ideas, theories, models, hypotheses that, you know, you have one input um, and you know what the output's going to be. And so that's one of the ways that you can look at, you know, from the scientific perspective is evidence. Now, where in the you know, hierarchy of how does that evidence apply to anything really depends on the question you've asked and the system you've used to answer that question. So you use the word reliable. Um, I mean, just reliable, though, how, I mean, how reliable is evidence? Because I think a lot of people take it for granted. Um, and I, I certainly from a practitioner's perspective, all the way, you know, down to the coach level, all the way up to senior practitioners and so on. People will take evidence maybe a little bit too um, too far. Yeah, a little bit too far because they're assuming, oh, it's published, therefore it's a fact. But 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 there's a difference between a fact and evidence and the reliability of that evidence, isn't there? Yeah, you know there is a substantial difference. You know, one of the things that I mean to kind of talk about the idea of reliability is, you know, when we think about it in the most basic scientific terms is how confident are you that your results are real um, and repeatable and also valid, right? Is how on target is the result you're getting? Is it due to what you actually think you did? Um, or is it due to some extraneous variable? So that's one key piece of the reliability aspect of, you know, I mean, we can use the nutrition literature as, as an excellent example of, you know, where these issues of reliability, validity, and, and real-world application come in is, you know, a lot of times nutrition studies that manipulate single variables, whether it's dietary carbohydrate intake, dietary fat intake, um, when you look at a lot of those studies is, you know, calorie intake isn't controlled, calorie expenditure isn't controlled. So, you know, all other sorts of things, hormones, sleep, the type of training, all that kind of stuff. And so, what you do is you, you see this evidence of, you know, restricting dietary fat or restricting dietary carbohydrate leads to X result, but it's really not that piece. It's some other important variable that's missed 
in experimental design or something. So the reliability piece really comes down to, you know, how well controlled is your experiment? Um, what other potential things could explain the result? And that's kind of the scientific terms of some of the ideas that you have. Um, and the other piece that goes with it, you know, there's not just reliability, which is how often do you get the same result from the same, you know, experiment um, or the same test, but the validity of that result, right? How on target is it? So the best kind of way to picture it is reliability is, you know, essentially what you can talk about in a little bit, but repeatability, right? If you were to shoot on a target, you know, how tightly grouped are those those points that hit the target? And then validity is how close to center are you? So there's there's two key pieces that go into that aspect. Yeah, and I, so there's, there's something here that always crops up, um, particularly when I think about this from a practitioner's perspective, and that is the difference between what what you need to do in order to control all of those variables, have a really nice, clean environment um, that is not going to be um, infected with problems mm-hmm. um, that will cause a nightmare for your study and therefore the conclusions you can draw from it. But of course, when we live in the real world, as as we call it, some of us live in more less of a real world. Than <laughs> but you, you, you know, the, the the obvious thing there is is well, we're not controlling variables. So how you know if 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 we were able to replicate in the real world or find someone who literally lives in exactly that same context in which the study was done, maybe that information might be more applicable. And that's where I think. There is some confusion here is about what what they're concluding in in the lab or, um, you you know, this idea of statistical significance as opposed to real world significance. Um, And obviously my favorite C word of all um, context um, rears its ugly head all the time. But, for you know, since we're talking about doing science, these things have to be done. You have to control Variable. So before the purists start going on about, yeah, but that's not the real world and so on, maybe you could help us just understand why we need to control all that stuff before we start talking about it being relevant or irrelevant. Yeah, so, you know, I have a, I have a few perspectives and hopefully I can kind of articulate these clearly is one of the really hard parts about, you know, translating science into practice is if you miss the if you miss the truths in the scientific piece a lot of times that error gets magnified in the real world um so i think if you know if you're interpreting some aspect of a study um that you that you think is is what it means and you're misinterpreting it and you then go apply it in the real world you're gonna miss most of what the important information from that that scientific study is right so i think if you I think the importance of having the well-controlled scientific studies to really glean out the truths of you know what it is, what what is the mechanism by which this works, um, is actually important for practitioners to understand. Because if you if you have a faulty understanding of the basic mechanism, then when you go to apply it to clients, it'll be very hard for you to figure out okay why did this work in this client but not in this client when you don't have the accurate understanding of the underlying fundamental principle. That you're actually trying to, to get to. Um, so I think that's that's one of the reasons why both the the very well controlled scientific study that elucidates a, a major principle 
um, is incredibly important, not only to the scientists, um, but also to the practitioners, right? If you have, let's say you have 10 clients um, who all present with, you know, some sort of similar-ish background, a little bit different, all have similar-ish goals, but a little different, and you have a misunderstanding of this fundamental principle, those 10 people are all going to get very different results because of some misunderstanding you have of this basic principle. Yeah. I, I mean, the, as you say this, I'm, it unravels a hornet's nest of, of ideas and concepts. Remember, I was saying this was going to be freestyle. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I don't want to. I don't want us to be swimming in a in a river of red herrings here. But I think this could be quite easy. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is just how many problems can actually occur in doing the science. I and mean, this is before we. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get into um, how how the data itself is handled. You know how it's it's sort of reformatted for. Um, consumption by the you know by broadcast whether it's um, in papers or um, mm-hmm. people's blogs or social media we'll get into that in a minute but you know you you, you probably recall on social media recently there was um, recent study uh, uh, did the rounds where um, we discovered um, that uh, DEXAs um, may not be yep. as reliable for body composition um, you know, primarily because of the um, issues with um, how hydration and creatine content and carbohydrate content of muscle, mm-hmm. you know, and so on can alter the findings. Now, you start to think about that and you think, well, how how many bits of equipment um, aren't necessarily doing what we think they should be doing? How many of them haven't even been calibrated properly within the lab? How many... How many people have compared one brand of DEXA to another brand without necessarily realizing that that actually is two completely different pieces of equipment ultimately? I mean, what? give us an idea, and you're, you could probably run wild with this, but I think it's worth it for the listeners to understand how we should be careful about how much we trust um, in the data that's produced without necessarily understanding what sort of quality control has gone into the um you know the the production of this data so what what sort of things can cause problems within the lab environment that spring to mind um as it was as it relates to the production of data yeah i think that's that's one of the most uh under talked about underappreciated difficult aspects of um, science and then also conveying it to the public you know one of the things that the more you're involved in the actual data collection, the lab work, as you start to really get a feel for what is the inherent error and problems with our tools of data collection. Um, I think the DEXA scan is, you know, a perfect example of, you know, we've got these pieces of equipment that we have this assumption of how they work, um, but how accurate are they, right? We don't, I think we put a lot we put too much faith on the reliability and the accuracy of our instrumentation because we think they're machines and they just do exactly what they do and they're accurate and they're infallible. Um, now, on the flip side of that is the machines do what they do and they give us data, but it's our job to interpret them. Um, you know, other big problems that we we can really talk about is, you know, we can just stick to the exercise physiology field and we can really kind of run wild with it is, you know, a lot of the tools we use to probe some of the, the more hot topic questions, um, you know, we can talk about 
you know, markers of muscle protein synthesis, right? A lot of times people will use um, things like Western blots. Um, they will use like, you know, sunset assays for, um, you know, mTOR activity and stuff like that. And the more you actually run those assays, you know, I can't even tell you how many Western blots I ran in my life, but you start to realize how insensitive those things actually are and how variable and how all over the place those results can be in a lab, right? So for example, you know, you do a study in, you know, let's say even in humans, you have them train, you take a muscle biopsy, you know, you, you flash freeze it, you homogenize it, you put it in special buffers, you put it in, you know, a, uh, a phosphate inhibitor, a protease inhibitor, you run it down a gel, you transfer it to a membrane, you, you block it, you incubate it with antibodies, and all along the way in each of these steps, they each change how the end result of the data is. And, you know, all along the way, you're losing sensitivity, you're losing specificity, you're losing reliability, and all these things. So a lot of these papers, when you see, you know, these, these beautiful Western blots, I would imagine that that experiment was done 15, 20 times um, to try to get that one image to show you the picture that they are trying to really paint and their whole hypothesis. So a lot of these lab-based studies we see are not quite as sensitive as we think they are. So if you see a change in muscle protein synthesis due to a Western blot by 10 or 15 percent, you know, with my background and experience, I see that, and to me that doesn't really mean a whole lot. Um, so you've really got to kind of know the nuances of, of the, and the limitations of how to interpret a lot of that data. Yeah, so um, you uh, recently I saw on um, social media, in fact, this was why I, I wanted to talk to you because it gave me an idea to get into this stuff, was um, I think it was to do with, um, with rats, I think it was, or mm -hmm. mice. Um, and you use some, I, I should have had it in front of me, but it was something along the lines of, you know, the fact that, well, we do actually think carefully about, you know, the rats that we're choosing. And I thought that was a really interesting idea because most people won't even think about that. Um, you know, in terms of animal studies then, um, cause I'd like to talk about that cause that is one thing that comes up with, you know, people go, well, I'm not going to include animal studies in my literature review because, well, we're not dealing with rats, but of course there is a there is a reason for doing this. Um, so, firstly, the value of of animal studies, um, the, the the issues with animal studies, and and because you've done this yourself, some mm -hmm. interesting stuff that people probably didn't know about how you guys go about this sort of thing. Yeah, so I guess we'll we'll paint with a broad brush first. Mm. You know. The, the value of animal studies is, um, I think it's, it's an interesting issue because I think in one aspect it's highly overrated, um, in another aspect I think it's incredibly underrated. So why is it overrated is, you know, the traditional argument of, you know, animals studies don't always translate to humans um, is entirely true, right? It's very uh, myopic and narrow thinking to think that we can take an animal, um, do some tests in it, and exactly what happens in that mouse or that rat is going to happen in humans. Um, but I think that really misses the boat of, you know, people who are accomplished scientists who do a lot of animal studies, you know, especially more translational scientists, realize what the value of an animal is. Um, and, and here's how I personally view them is they are tools to 
really drill down and pin, on, pin down on specific questions um, and mechanisms and control an environment that you couldn't do in humans, right? There's a lot of studies that you just are not able to do in humans. For example, my, uh, my dissertation study was looking at, basically the idea was, you know, we know that exercise is, is protective for a lot of chronic conditions, you know, especially heart disease um, and stuff like that. And we, didn't, we don't really know the molecular mechanisms behind it. Now, I can't take a bunch of humans, um, run them on a treadmill, or have another group be sedentary, and then take a heart biopsy and do a bunch of you know, epigenetic analysis and stuff like that. So animals provide us a very good uh, tool that we can use to ask some of those questions. So then when you get some data from those animals, you start to think, okay, here's some of the molecular signatures we see that's different in these mice. Can we then use that findings to extrapolate in a human study that we have already done or there's tissue or, you know, how would we think about this in humans? So that's, um, that's one example of, you know, how exactly do you use animals, right? You don't use them as a, you know, a disease equivalent and then just start throwing drugs at them. You find a drug that cures, you know, heart disease or kidney disease in mice and then give it to humans, assuming the same thing's going to happen, right? That's, I think that's the, the view that a lot of the lay public has about how we view animals in research, and it's actually quite the opposite. Um, so now, how do we as scientists kind of think about these things when we go after answering a question? So kind of the, the field I'm working in right now is, uh, you know, diabetic and organ complications and, you know, basically how, do they, how are they caused, um, what's the pathogenesis, and how do we treat them? And so... A lot of chronic human diseases are so multifactorial, right? So um, kidney disease, for example, has contributions from metabolism, right? Somebody who's diabetic has hyperlipidemia, hyperglycemia, hyperinsulinemia. Um, they've also got, you know, hemodynamic problems. We know that changes in hemodynamics cause structural functional changes in the kidney, so now we need, we need a model that we can manipulate all these variables um, and we can pin down on specific pieces and start to tease out these multifactorial things. So when we go after some of these questions, we think very specifically and carefully about what, what mice we use. So you know, one of the things um, you know, that there are is you know, if you're looking at somebody who's looking at the effect of you know, diet on the development of diabetic kidney disease. And you're thinking about, okay, sodium could be involved because it, it increases hypertension in people who are diabetic. Um, you can use a salt-sensitive rat that's more applicable for that question. Um, and then if you've got other strains of mice that are, you know, diabetic genetically, okay, do we want a mouse that is genetically diabetic or do we want one that is induced by a diet, right? They each have pros and cons. Um, there's some mice that develop kidney disease that is very similar to humans, um, you know, with a lot of the histological features, the functional features, um, and all the metabolic features. And then there's some that don't develop it in any similar way. It's just substantially different. So when we go after these questions is people don't just, you know, go to Walmart and pick up a mouse and throw it in a cage and start doing stuff to it is, there's very targeted specific questions um, that we ask and we use models according to each tool. And then we use those findings and then we say, okay, this is what we found in this animal. What is the next translation into humans? Do we test it in a different animal? Or do we test it in 
know, a different genetic model? Um, do we look for samples from, from humans that have had biopsies and see if the same phenotype and, and you know, disease pathway is activated? So it's, it's a very different view from the inside of how animal studies are used versus the outside. Great. So th thanks for that. Um, I'm sure a lot of this is completely new knowledge for lots of the listeners. I, I know that we have, as I said before we spoke, there's a bunch of graduate students, PhD students, probably sitting in a lab staring at a mouse right now. Um, <laughs> yep. So um, the, 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 the reason why I like to discuss this is because it gives us a better of appreciation of where the knowledge is coming from. Um, so when we read a study or search through the literature and inevitably you'll come across nutrition studies and exercise science studies um, that do involve mice and, um, and rats and so on. And as we delve into the, uh, the methods, etc., that, that the scientists have, have used, um, you know, perhaps we'll have a better understanding as to what they may or may not have been thinking about. Ha having said that, though, um, you know, would you expect them to describe this in in their research, in their papers? And are there a bunch of studies that are not done on the right, on the correct mice or the appropriate relevant mice and rats, etc.? What what for us as consumers of this knowledge? What should we be aware of when we're looking at this stuff in, in that regard? Yeah, you know, one of the, uh, the interesting things is, you know, not all scientists are created equal um, and not all research is created equal, right? There are a lot of published studies that don't think about these things, right? They just, you know, they go to jacksonlabs.com and they order whatever mice they think looks good. Um, they don't really know what they're doing. They get a paper published, um, and so there is, there is actually a substantial amount of that that occurs, right? We can't, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. Um, but, you know, I think for the consumer, you know, somebody who's reading these studies, there's kind of two different levels, kind of the lay person or more lay person, you know, somebody who's interested in research, but, you know, hasn't really done it, doesn't have a whole lot of experience is when you look at studies in animals is... Use them as ways to get an understanding of some of the the mechanisms, some of the underlying questions, and some of the just thought processes of how to think about your specific area. So if you're, you know, if you're into, you know, muscle hypertrophy, um, you know, and they have studies where they, you know, exercise mice or they do this or they do that, you know, you can look at okay, here's a they did a they had a rat run on a treadmill, they did a muscle biopsy. Um, they looked at changes in gene expression for, you know, whether it's muscle hypertrophy or whether it's, you know, um, you know, the antioxidant system. You know, you can use those studies and say, okay, here's a, here's a general principle, right? It looks like, you know, when we exercise, these type of genes are turned on. Um, you know, obviously the amount's very different. The type of load is very different. Um, the metabolic response is very different. But you can kind of use those those fundamental concepts and the general principle of what they're trying to get at and kind of use that as a nugget of information to then start thinking about how how you translate that to the next level in humans. Now, if you're somebody who's more, you know, research-oriented um, and likes to get a lot more deeper into those things is, you know, there's, at this point, there's so many well-characterized, you know, models, right, 
almost all mouse models are very well phenotyped. Um, you can go onto websites and find out their phenotype. There's papers published that are like mouse models of cardiovascular disease, mouse models of kidney disease, mouse models of you know immuno, um, you know autoimmune disorders. There's mouse models that they have characterized for you know Alzheimer's, autism, all sorts of stuff, and you can really start to dig in the literature and there's very extensive discussions on each of these aspects and you can really get a more fine-tuned um, understanding of what those pieces are so you know from a listener's perspective you know i i think i'm going to share with many of them and go wow holy moly there's all sorts of issues that could come here which sort of makes me worry about the quality mm -hmm. of, of information and you know and in terms of how much speculation and misinterpretation, etc., that goes behind claims that's made for the data. Um, yeah. So obviously there should be a firewall um, for that knowledge, and that in theory um, would be the peer-reviewed journal, would be the editor and the peer reviewers. But that, um, as I have discovered is by far from a perfect process and there is all sorts of problems there as well um so you know we, we we can go back into the doing science bit but but since we're here on this topic currently you know what, what where are where are there going to be issues for you as a scientist you've done your research you've 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 made damn sure that you've done quality science mm -hmm. um as you've described you then submit that to a journal um, and that kind of almost goes out of your hands at that point and it's dealt with people who you don't know. Um, it's a blind process who may not have your level of knowledge or understanding. It, it is not always the case that the reviewers are more knowledgeable than you, which is an interesting scenario. I mean, w w you know, how do you feel about that data at that point and where it goes and the concerns that us as consumers should have with it? Yeah, um, you know, one of the hard parts is once you've, you know, let's assume that it makes it through peer review um, and it does get published, you know, a lot of the, the difficulty is it's really out of your hands, right? It's kind of like writing a book um, that people will, you know, misquote, missay, things like that. So I think one of the things, you know, as a scientist that we need to do a better job of is, you know, communicating more clearly the the actual intentions and the limitations of the work that we do. Um, you know, I think there are some there are some very good journals that publish editorials along with papers to kind of you know put them in the scope. But I think as scientists, both both in our publications when we write, uh, we need to be more explicit about those. And the second is we need to be better communicators to the public. Right mm. now that there's so much ease of access to a lot of these science um, papers. You know, a lot of people are getting more interested in it, the whole evidence-based explosion um, or evidence-informed explosion, right? People are starting to start starting to read a lot of these papers, um, and it's really our job as scientists to realize once you publish the paper, the work isn't done. You still need to do a better job of communicating your findings in a larger context to people, whether that is you know, writing popular press articles so to kind of explain it, whether it's, you know, having interviews or, you know, responding to emails or, you know, whatever it is, is we just as scientists need to realize our job isn't just 
you know, write a paper, send it into the journal, and you know, use that as a check mark for tenure is our work goes to the public, and it's our job to help people interpret it. It's not just a, a laissez-faire, hands-off kind of thing, right? Is the the dissemination of knowledge needs to be an active process. It can't just be passive. You can't just submit it. You know, even if it's a big paper like in the New England Journal, you shouldn't just let it go. Is you need to actively be involved in educating people about your topic. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Brad. I mean, as you know, much of my work is all about this concept of knowledge transfer, um, mm. dissemination. I'm particularly interested in alternative methods of uh, knowledge transfer, um, you know, infographics, info videos, that sort of thing. Um, uh, this idea of, of creating the data is interesting because it's why was the study done in the first place? And you, you touched upon something I think is interesting. Um, sometimes people are, are doing a study because they just want to pump out um you know, papers, that's what they need to do. They need career advancement. Um, I'm not saying that they're doing the studies purely just to notch up, you know, numbers of papers in publication, but sometimes it does appear that way. Um, mm -hmm. They're not necessarily concerned with uh, quality, but it's about quantity, publish or perish. Um, you know, and there are various metrics that exist, like um, in the UK, we've got REF, research excellence framework um you got you know traditional metrics to determine just how well you're doing you know your citation rates um things like h indexes to determine you know um you know how many citations per paper all that sort of stuff um you've then got people uh, producing work to inform um colleagues um and practitioners you know people have different reasons for pumping out research um perhaps we should maybe also talk about that because as we were talking offline issues of funding uh come up you know there's different reasons for doing a study and there's going to be uh to a certain extent different um different types of bias if you like um i mean that whole the whole bias thing is a, a, a you know whether we're talking uh, cognitive bias or or uh, or otherwise there's a whole angle there but um, I think it's worth us discussing briefly why studies are done in the first place and it's not just about trying to help the world um, there are all kinds of things behind this yeah you know I think why people do conduct studies or publish papers really spans the um, entire spectrum right you've got everything from People are just interested in a very fundamental basic question, right? It's, they, it just interests them, um, and they're going to do it regardless. Then you've got uh, the far other end of the spectrum of this is a big problem in the world. We need to fix it. And then there's always the just this is a hot topic. If I publish a paper on it, um, it'll be highly cited, and I'll move up in my career. So there's there's kind of that whole whole spectrum of why papers are published. Yeah, I, so one thing I'm fascinated with is, um, and I don't know if you've heard of this concept, but it's called negative knowledge um, and the value of negative knowledge. And by that I mean, for example, let's say you're driving your norm, normal route to work um, and you suddenly find that, um, you know, some car's broken down, the whole thing's blocked in the way. You know, do you just sit there 
um, and you're late for work? Or is it that you happen to know um, that there's an alternative route which you determined once by getting lost? So it's a negative event um, um, in, you know, in one way of looking at it, but that negative event actually provided you with useful knowledge that, that, um, that actually comes to use at time, uh, over time. And that's one argument for why experts um, are better at what they do than novices because they've mm-hmm. experienced more problems and mistakes over the years and they know to avoid certain things. Um, they know how to get around a problem because of this negative knowledge but in in science there's a there's a what's been described as an ignorance of ignorance in science and and by that i mean we don't publish negative studies exactly uh, that's a huge problem the more i delved into this topic i thought my god how many people are doing studies that actually someone else did the year or two before that it's uh <laughs> it's, it's funny you bring this up um you know there's kind of Two, two things to talk about a little bit is, you know, I just, I am a firm believer in the negative studies are just as important as the positive studies from both a scientific perspective, you know, we need to know what doesn't work. Um, and also from a, you know, pragmatic perspective, I, I, I would guess that there are labs all around the world that have done the same work and got a negative result and didn't publish it. And so nobody else knows about it. Um, I just reviewed a, a paper for a fairly major journal in which it, uh, the, the findings were negative, right? The, the study basically showed that what they were looking for to kind of predict disease progression just didn't work. Um, it, didn't, it didn't have any predictive power, really anything meaningful. And it was in a large study of people. Um, and it was probably a very expensive study to do. And so, you know, one of the reviewers said this doesn't add anything to the field. And my comments were, when you have a highly powered negative study, and it's been it's meticulously um, thought out in the methods, and it's a very it's a a strong negative signal that needs to be published because it prevents people from doing the same work over and over again. Um, it lets us move on to to different questions. And we know what to avoid in the future, and so I think that's a that's a huge piece that we don't talk enough about. I mean, I can't tell you how many hundreds of experiments, even in the last two years, that are sitting on my computer in my lab from negative data that won't be published because it's it's not anything interesting to journals. Mm. Yeah, well, that's sad, isn't it? I mean, we could easily <laughs> we could easily argue that negative knowledge is more useful than so-called positive knowledge um or at least it's like you know like a bicycle you you you've got two wheels you one 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 is just as important as the other it's irrelevant about which one's in front and which one's behind it's kind of a silly conversation about uh which one would you rather have um you need both um it, it, it's essential um i guess it's the yin and yang of of what drives us forward um, and maybe that's why we're constantly going in circles all the time because we constantly leave out one of those wheels of knowledge. Um, I mean, you mentioned there about journals don't like this, and and it's true. I I have um, experienced this myself. You know, they 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 only want to hear certain things because I guess ultimately many journals won't sell. To be blunt, um, they won't sell their advertising space. They won't. You know, I, and I know that there's this growth now of um, um, open access 
papers. Of course, there's problems there too because you have to, as an author, spend a hell of a lot of money to get published into those journals. So there's always yeah these these predatory journals. Oh yes, I get an email every every week. I get emails from some like you know journal of astro rheumatology, for example. <laughs> You know, uh, and I'm like, um, yes, and they're sort of saying we'd be very pleased to have one of your papers. I'm like, you have no idea who I am, do you? <laughs> nope. But people do, and and again, that that ends up somebody somewhere publishes a a paper into one of these dodgy journals and uses that to you know promote their so-called expertise to sell supplements or whatever well okay so right so that that's a point so if we bring this to knowledge um whether it's negative knowledge or whether it's positive knowledge dressed up as negative knowledge or vice versa because of course people don't necessarily know what they're looking at because they haven't been through the processes that you for example have been through they they just presented with something that's dressed up as science scientific data and on the back of their supplement or in the magazine where they're looking at this protein thing it says you know consuming this every day gives you gains um you know the average member of public just doesn't have this level of filter it's just not realistic um Mm -hmm. you know perhaps perhaps we as a as a group of people should be doing more um about this and i guess this brings us back to your idea of Scientists shouldn't possibly just be publishing into their, you know, high impact factor journals. Perhaps they they need to be also concerned with the delivery of that knowledge as far as possible, the care of it, I guess. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think you make a, an excellent point. You know, I think one of the, the problems um, that's going on, and it's been painted quite uh, in your face, in the last six to nine months due to the United States presidential election and and all the other stuff that has followed is um, there is a giant movement of information um, and it's really hard right now to discern what is true and what is false, right? It's just, you just want to publish some big name, big ticket headline article, um, whether it's, you know, politics, science or whatever, and there's not a lot of thought and care given to what the publication of these ideas mean um, and whether they're circulated and how that, you know, actually affects the whole community. You know, I think one of – we can use the nutrition, exercise, physiology um, arena as kind of a microcosm of, you know, there's no, there's no filter right now of how to filter out good information from bad information. Um, you know, there's thousands of blogs that are writing about things that are completely inaccurate. Um, there's lots of podcasts, there's, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and we kind of as scientists have a fundamental issue and a lot of our, the things that we discover and find and know are, are really hard to package up and and sell as anything, you know, slick or quick, or we can't market it. Um, just (laughs) based on the fact that, A, we are scientists, we don't know how to market, and our writing sucks. Um, and two is the answers just usually aren't you know easily portable to a, a quick solution for people. So we've got to figure out a way to you know increase the volume of what we have to say, um, increase the quality, and also increase the how we make it interesting for people to consume. You know, a lot of the, the most popular people and blogs are not people who 
have figured out the truth and the science. They've figured out how to make something appealing to people and get them to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the issues there, though, um, is often a lot of people that that distribute the wrong knowledge, the wrong messages, are often people that, that aren't necessarily doing it on purpose. I think sometimes, you know, we use the term sort of quack, for example, but but not all quacks, you know, know that they're quacks. Uh, yeah. You know, I I, uh, I certainly operated somewhat on the fringes of, of science very, uh, you know, early on in my career doing all sorts of stuff like alternative medicine and stuff. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I didn't even know. I didn't even know. Um, so I think, you, and then you get to that realization of, holy shit, <laughs> this stuff's a load of bollocks. Um, you know, and um, I think that that realization does hit most people. But when, you know, now that we're in the age of, social media and blogs mm-hmm. and so on you do have people peddling all sorts of information and i guess rather than saying look we need to clamp down on all these people and need to have licensure and all sorts of things that's just that's just not going to happen what we nope. need to do is arm the consumers with enough knowledge so that they they have they have the tools to filter to differentiate and discern quality from flawed information so yeah so how so maybe maybe we should talk about then about mm-hmm. how, how do we choose or differentiate quality from flawed from a consumer's point of view and by a consumer I, I, I because most of our listeners are in themselves coaches practitioners some of which are scientists of course we all we're all consumers one way or the other perhaps perhaps you know you could share us some thoughts even from your own perspective when you're on social media, when you're reading journal articles, you know, what are the sort of things that you immediately do to filter that knowledge and differentiate, you know, the BS from, from quality? Oh man. Um, that's a, that's a good question. I think there's a lot of, of different pieces to talk about, you know, when we, when we want to get the truth across to somebody, right. Who is, I guess we'll, we'll tackle this from two perspectives. One is how do we as people increase the the likelihood that somebody's going to believe what we write over somebody else? And you know, one of them is is the style in which you write. Um, I'm a big believer in the build up somebody's kind of intellectual edifice and give them the tools and kind of walk them to an answer um, rather than coming out and saying, what you believe now is stupid, and I don't know how you can believe this. Um, I just don't feel like that engages people to try to get them to find your point of view rather than kind of logically taking them in the direction that you want them to go. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, how do we get people to figure out how to filter the the truth from the non-truth? You know, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I... I really don't know what, you know, other than just educating people um, slowly over time, giving them the tools to know what's real and what's not. Um, you know, you can say, you know, only go to these sources, but, you know, they're going to read everything else. So, I mean, I would welcome any thoughts you have on how we, how yeah. we help people. I mean, because there's, there's some really interesting ideas and hypotheses that I think you know, kind of make sense the first time you read them but they don't really they're not true so I mean what kind of thoughts do you have on that well I well it's a good I mean I this is a very important question that I have myself concerned 
you know, concern myself with for some time because it's been part of my own journey is this transition from not knowing the hell of what I was doing <laughs> to where I am now. And um, it's it's one's openness to learning that I think is mm-hmm. the issue. I think people are very open to learn. They They want to know. They want to know how to get healthier. They want to know... Um, how to do things right, and they want to know how to help other other people. I think you just need to stop and and think about where is this information coming from. You know how 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 likely is it that this person really is the right person to deliver that message? And I think that's where people get a bit you know a bit stuck. Um, mm-hmm. They'll they'll believe one person because about some diet and fitness thing because they look fit and healthy but that doesn't necessarily mean that they themselves um understand um you know uh how to interpret and and distribute information and uh, all the stuff that we've been talking about so i think there does need to be a a point at which you need to think about where's this knowledge coming from who who's telling me this stuff how likely is it that they are actually qualified in one way or another and that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to have a PhD or, you know, but you, I think you, as an individual, you need to sit there and actually, um, you know, like you guys, you interrogate the data. It's not black and white, but you interrogate it, you engage with it and you think about it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing. We need to, before we just absorb information, we need to interrogate that information somewhat and go, hang on, you know, where's this coming from? Um, who's telling me this? You know, just start asking a few questions to yourself so that you can, you can determine the level of trust for that knowledge because we do this all day long, don't we? And we have gut feelings, we have instincts, and, and often they're wrong, um, which is a yeah. difficult thing to admit, I think. Yeah, I think there's you know two pieces that you talked about a little bit um, and just kind of put labels on them. Is one is being open to being wrong, yeah. right? I think I think that's I think that there's three things that I've learned in the last ten years that have really kind of helped me is. One, it's, you know, don't be afraid to be wrong about something and change your mind. You know, I always tell people is I'm more concerned with finding the right answer than I am being right. And I think that's, you know, incredibly important. Um, I think you also have this level of once you've learned, I don't know what the threshold is, but at some point when you become, you know, well-educated enough or you know enough, you, you kind of have this aha moment where you realize how little you actually know. And I think that is a big fundamental piece that you know, people who've kind of gotten to that point who realize, wow, there's so little I actually know, um, that really starts to help you with the, the being okay with being wrong and being open-minded. And this, the third piece is just being critical of everything that you read and see, right, is you know, just always try to look at something as critically as possible. Don't accept things the first time you read them or see them. Mm-hmm. Um, really try to like you said, interrogate it and ask a lot of questions of, okay, if this is true, would this happen? Why would this be true? Could this not be true? What are alternative explanations um, of what we see happening? So I think those are three key pieces. Is you know completely agree. Real, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think um, actually um, I did have an answer to that question, and um, the credit goes to Professor Kevin Tipton. Um, who um, I got this from, where um, he he goes on about being um, sceptical but open-minded. Um, and I think that, you know, some people can be overly open-minded. Um, I certainly was um, years ago. Um, but 
when you understand how to be skeptical and open-minded, I think that's a really sweet spot. Um, you know, it, it is difficult. And that's why I like talking about these things from either the experiences I've had or, you know, the experiences that you've had is, um, you know, even it doesn't matter how right you think you are about something, you should always bear in mind you could be wrong. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, that's one of the most interesting things I think I experienced is the first time I went to a really big scientific conference. Mm. Um, you know, when I was sitting in one of the one of the sessions with probably some of the top 10 people in the field that I was studying, and, you know, you go in and you expect these people to be, you know, almost very arrogant and, and strident in what they believe, and it was amazing how many of those people, you know, they, were, they, they gave their talk, people were asking questions, and people were just drilling these people, and they were like, yeah, I don't know, I could be wrong, and you're like, oh. And it's very interesting to see that side of things. Yeah, I, I do love listening to people who are, you know, always coming at it from the perspective of, look, this is what we know. Mm-hmm. We don't know everything. We could be wrong. You know, they position the knowledge from the, well, they position the knowledge in the context of, you know, when we're, 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 we've still got so much more to learn. Um, and I think... You, you said this, and this is something I think we all experience over time, is that the more you learn, the, the more you realize you don't know. Uh, I certainly have felt that myself, which has sort of opened up this insane hunger for knowledge, which is why I like talking to you guys. Um, there, there is just so much that we don't know. And I think it, the reality is, is we, 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 know, we know far less. Um, you know, we know, we know a lot less than we do know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, it, it's kind of like reality. every time you answer one question, you've got 10 more. And yeah. you're like, well, now I know less yeah. than I when I started this this journey. Yeah. Um, and that's always a very sobering perspective. Yeah. Well, it's like my two-year-old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my two-year-old's got a hell of a lot more questions than i got answers. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and you get to a point where, you know, do you know what? I've got no more answers because daddy's stupid. <laughs> yeah. That's probably the best. And then response. I'm going to go have a drink and deal with it and contemplate <laughs> my stupidity. That's basically how that goes. Yep. Um, listen, I think you know. I think I think that's about as far as we need to go because it was it was very much a freestyle conversation. I I, I really enjoyed talking with you, Brad. Um, we delved all sorts of topics, which I will um, summarize into the notes and um, um, bullet points of what we got into on the uh, on my website. Um, for this particular podcast um, for folks that want to follow you you've got all sorts of great outputs um, I know you spend lots of time in the lab but you also spend time um, in the gym and and writing blogs and all sorts of cool stuff um, so so if people want to follow you and learn from you how, how, how best can they do that yeah, um, so where most of my writing lives is uh, sciencedrivennutrition.com, um, and then people can find me on Facebook, it's just Brad Dieter, um, and then you know, I'm, you can email me, you can send me a Facebook message or whatever, I'm always very open and uh, up for conversations for whatever people have. If anybody disagrees with anything I said here, uh, let me know, and I'd be happy to chat about that too. Yeah, no, well, you know, I do appreciate your time. It's been great talking to you. I hope everyone... Yeah, it's been a blast. I really appreciate it. Cool, well, good. Um, um, I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as we did. I I love having these conversations. And 
Um, obviously, there's uh, this was episode 90, so there's 89 other podcasts that I've done talking to all sorts of interesting um, and wonderful people. So, folks, please go check those out. Um, you can get the backlog of all the podcasts. Um, we're nearly at a million already. It's unbelievable downloads. I can't believe it. Um, at uh, guruperformance.com. Also, I referred to the various vehicles of knowledge transfer that me and my team have created, such as our um, info graphics, info videos, technical articles, that sort of thing, as well as our few, a few papers that we've published in the peer review. You can learn about that on our, on our website at guruperformance.com, as well as our educational uh, programs, primarily our postgraduate program in performance nutrition and, um, and exercise science professional development program. So that's all at uh, guruperformance.com. I, of course, am uh, Laurent Bannock and um, look forward to bringing another episode back to you all again soon. And one last time, thank you so much for the chat, Brad. Yeah, you too. I really appreciate it. Have a nice afternoon. Yeah, and you, mate.